Welcome to Park City Church. You're listening to our weekly message, where we hope you'll be inspired and encouraged to know and follow Jesus and welcome and serve others. Thank you for tuning in. Acts 4 this morning, verses 1 through 12. And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of men came to about 5,000. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem, with us, the high priest, Caiaphas and John and Alexander, and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, By what power or by what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if you are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. It's the word of the Lord. Anybody want to share your words to live by with me? No? YOLO? YOLO. That's right. You only live once. Words to live by. Anyone else? Did you have any suggestions for me? Say again? Djokovic, all right. That's a good word to live by as well, yeah. I, uh, I want you to hold that notion. Um, I, I, I hope to come back to it explicitly, but I, I may not. But I think you'll see the relevance of where uh, that conversation was intended to at least take your heart and mind this morning. We're in a series on the sort of opening chapters of Acts this summer. And we've, we've been sitting with or sort of holding the notion that uh, this is a book about, it's a book about the beginning of the church, and we've made the point, and we'll make it again. Oftentimes, as we read that story, what, what is exciting and what draws us in is sort of all the incredible things that people do, like Peter healing the crippled man last week, these incredible uh, sort of heroes of faith that begin uh, are a part of the beginning of the church. But we sort of have started with the premise that all that is there, but really what the story is telling us is, is not so much about what people do or have done, for God, but what he does and has done for people. And that gets expressed in all these stories. So we're, we're holding that same thought this morning. This is still a story about the beginnings of the church. We're still in those first days. This is actually a continuation of what we read last week. Peter, uh, the Holy Spirit, through him the heels, this uh, man outside the temple, and it causes a scene, and Peter stands up and preaches, and now it's landed him sort of under uh, the suspicion and uh, criticism of religious leaders and others, and so they spend, you know, they're, they're, they're put in jail, and Peter again is going to stand up and respond to this moment. But it's a st- still for us a story of how God is moving uh, toward us, toward you and me in, in grace. And Peter does in this moment what he, what he has done on more than one occasion, like a broken record just says the same, I mean, almost literally the same thing again. 
People are like, what's going on? Now people are persecuting him, and it's, the message is spreading. And Peter stands up and, and says the same thing again. I thought about just saying the same thing this week that I said last week, seeing if anyone would notice. And uh, I probably don't want to think honestly about the answer to that question. But this is what Peter says. It, it's, it's by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead. So he, he says literally the same thing. Well, what's going on? What's all this about? Jesus Christ, whom you crucified, God has raised. And that changes everything. Peter's like, that, that changes everything. I mean, it, it sounds like good news, right? He says, in fact, it's that event that has healed this man here, right? It, it's, it sounds like really good news, but I want us to think about some of its implications, as we hear it in the context of this story this morning. In fact, Peter, Peter zeroes in on, on one particular implication in his sermon this morning, uh, and this is what he says. So he's explaining, right? He's under accusation, under threat. He's in jail. He's like, look, this is, this is what has happened. This is all I can say, right? Christ whom you crucified has been raised from the dead, and that changes everything. But then he teases out, in light of this reality, this implication, verse 12. Salvation is found in no one else. There's no other name under heaven given to humanity by which we can be saved. And I want to suggest to you that it, it was as uncomfortable then as it is now to hear Peter make this assertion. Right? That, that as Peter stands... He says, right, he says, he's like, are we on trial for like an act of kindness, right? Almost like, what's the absurdity of what's happening here? And he points to this man, if we're on, on trial for an act of kindness, so be it. But this is the truth. Jesus Christ, whom you crucified, has been raised. And if that is true, there is no other way to life. That, that, that there is no other way, no other name by which we can be saved. I hear echoes, if you'll indulge me, of the Mandalorian. Peter stands up, points to Jesus, and says, this is the way. Right? Right? Like, you, you feel it. We're like, oh, that's, that's funny and fun, but, but also challenging to every other way our hearts are prone, prone to uh, pursue. Right? It, it, it sounds like good news. God has raised Jesus from the dead, and there is hope. There is a life that runs deeper than even death. Yet an implication of that truth comes with some um, challenge to our life and our world and our culture, and it was true for Peter, as, as true for Peter as it is for you and me today. I want us to kind of sit with that feeling this morning to think about some of the implications. Why resistance to this? I mean, Peter's like, this is a beautiful act of kindness. Why the pushback? I think the first one is probably obvious and obvious for you and how you live your lives and the cultures and places you live and work. What does it mean to say Jesus is the way in a world that it, it, the reason I think there's resistance is because it's exclusive. And few words are as bad, I think, currently than that one in our culture. I, 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 the image came to me. You guys play pickleball? Any of you guys play pickleball? 
sometimes, right? I don't, I play some and it's fun, but I got, had that privilege of, there was like a national tournament at one of the local pickleball courts recently. And I was watching people who, who I thought I played pickleball. They were actually playing pickleball. Um, and I was watching them play and it's, it's true. You know, you've seen it and maybe you're good like this. Like the people who know what they're doing, they hit the serve and then everybody comes to the net and it's just like dink, 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 right? Dink, dink. Everybody's just, you know, having a good time. Dink. And then wham, right? Somebody just slams it and is like, whoa, game, where did that come from? Game on. You can feel that with Peter or, or you, right, in our, our culture, right? We're like, there's space for everyone, like you do you, um, all of that kind of stuff. And we're like, that's great, dink, dink, dink. This, everyone is comfortable. There's space for all of us, dink, dink, dink. And then Peter stands up and says, well, there's really no other way than Jesus. And it's like, wham, you're right? Like, what, 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 what's the response that, that same feeling uh, is present in our current context. But, but um, others have pointed out, and we'll just make some uh, references here, that I, I think it's important for us to remember that it was perhaps just as challenging for Peter to stand up and confess this then as it is now. I mean, think about his context. The word we would use is pluralistic, right? That there's space for everyone. And how do you live peaceably? It's what pluralism. How do you live peaceably with others if you're going to allow space for, like, uh, everyone to kind of hold their uh, sort of version of you, right? And all that that comes with. You might say that, like, we all have different words to live by, and there has to be space for all, all of those. Well, then Peter's Day. Oh, I, I don't know why that is, but... Uh, I'm just going to keep going. You guys like, what's he talking about? Um, so uh, religious leaders, uh, there, were <laughs> there were elders, there were Sadducees. Uh, uh, in this moment, as Peter is preaching, we're going to try to fix that. Do you guys hear it? I don't know. Maybe it's Aaron is going to help us out. But if he doesn't, you can all just blame him. And, uh, yeah, he's, uh, he can handle it. Um, he's got thick skin. But. Sorry, I'll, st- I'll just keep going now. What was I saying? Oh, yeah, uh, the religious leaders were um, sort of in, in a moment, right, like the, where their, their response to Peter, one of the reasons it's a challenge, right, is they, is they, they, they needed a, a word for them. They were looking for a Messiah that would set them free from the Romans. A, you might say a private Messiah. He is for uh, us. And in just the previous chapter, an implication which Peter teases out as we've read this morning. Peter stands up and says, Jesus is coming back to restore everything, not just you, Israel, everything. And in fact, he says, he, all the people of the earth will be blessed through him. Right, so you hear what's happening, right? Peter stands up and says, man, this is good news for you, but it's also good news for them. And, and, and there's, a, there's a tension in this announcement because, which ironically, right, feels inclusive, but, but it is to exclude sort of their private version of what this is meant to be. And Peter says, no, this is salvation for all. Jesus, whom you crucified, has been raised from the dead. This has implications for death everywhere. But not just from the religious leaders. Also, later in Acts, it'll be a tension with sort of the Greek and Roman culture of their day. You guys know or have heard the story, right? The, the move in Rome was like, you can worship any god you want, right? That you do you. Except, right, you're, you're free to do you. But just when you sort of get to the end, make sure you also do Caesar is Lord. I mean, that's the confession you're 
call to make. Right? So in, in one sense, now Peter stands up in that context and says, well, well, actually, actually, Jesus whom you crucified has been raised from the dead. That changes everything. So for Peter to stand up in this moment and makes what is a, a universal claim in a space much like our own where uh, this is sort of not the way we play pickleball nicely together. What does it mean for Peter, for you, for me, to stand up in a context like this and look at something like what God has done in Jesus and say this is true, this is the way another version of that question might be like, well, what does it mean to make that confession peaceably? Can, is there any space in which you can stand up and assert something to be true that isn't in some way offensive to someone else? Right? You, you can live your truth so long as it doesn't impinge upon mine or on someone else's. Raises all sorts of questions, and smarter minds than mine have teased those out and be happy to step into some of those conversations with you. One implication of sort of that approach, well, then at the end of the day, and then there, there are uh, uh, hints of this currently, culturally, well, it makes fighting for justice hard to do because how do you, how do you have a leg to stand on if, if, if it's, everyone has the sort of space to live by their own um, right, words for life? If, if there is no sort of peaceable claim to something that is ultimately true, Peter stands up and says, actually, the gospel has an answer for that. Of all the things you could pursue, the gospel has an answer for that tension, for that feeling, uh, for the challenge of standing up with a message like that in a culture that, that is to be uh, uh, open for all sorts of expressions. He says, Jesus Christ, whom you crucified. That at the heart of the gospel, is a man who laid down uh, his life. It's the moral heart. It's this non-oppressive truth, as some have expressed it, that at the heart of the, the claim, Jesus Christ is Lord, is to say that at the center of what is true is a man who emptied himself, who gave up power, who relinquished his life in love and humility. He is the center, and if he is the center, there is no space for superiority in your life or mine. And so Peter can stand up and say bluntly, plainly, humbly, but courageously, Jesus Christ, whom you crucified, has been raised from the dead, and he is Lord. If this is true, it has implications for all the other words of life you live by. But, but I, don't think, I don't think it's strictly sort of this, like an intellectual space. Even for you or um, in our context, right, we, we want to think, right, that we, we maybe have a hard time with this claim on purely intellectual reasons. And they are certainly there for those tensions we feel around words like exclusion. But, but I, I think there's a little more happening in the passage. It's not just... Um, it's, it's not just that it sounds exclusive, but I, I think it's challenging for the people in the reading to hear Peter say this because it's personal. And I think you'll find that to be true in your life and the lives of your friends and neighbors. That the good news of Jesus is, is personal. It's, it, it's a word of grace, but it strikes at us. 
right? It, it, it strikes, you might say, at our foundations. To use the image that Peter used, uh, he, he, drew, he draws on a, a psalm that Kristen read for us this morning as we started our service, that Jesus is the cornerstone. He's the foundation. He's sort of what holds the structure together. And to hear that word spoken to you and me is to hear it personally, to, to feel that word personally. That if Jesus is the cornerstone, then whatever you're building your life on or me is now under th- threat, is, is called into question as being genuinely good, as leading to life, as being su- sustainable. Right? On the one hand, they're, they're frustrated by Peter's claim. Jesus Christ is Lord, whom you, whom you crucified, but whom God has raised from the dead. If this is true, this is the only place there's real and genuine life by which we can be saved. They're troubled by Peter's claim. He is the cornerstone, Peter says, by whom we are saved. And that has all sorts of implications for all the ways you're trying to save yourself. But, but it's not just Peter's claim. It's, it's that it's Peter's claim. They're like, what is this guy? You know, we, they, they, they recognize him as unschooled and ordinary. And then they say, you know, he seems to have been with Jesus. And I don't think it's a compliment in the passage. It's not like, wow, man, this guy, he's been with Jesus. It's like, you, is the, if, I don't know, it feels like they're frustrated and uh, annoyed, right? They continue to want to persecute and silence it's, it's, it's personal. How could someone like this declare a word like that and, and have all of these kinds of, a, of effects? It's an affront to how they have managed to, to what they hold to be true. It's, it's personal. I, uh, um, I recently read through Crime and Punishment by Dostoevsky, and it's uh, the Russian author, it's, it's weird to say it's great fun. It's a great read, um, but it is. But it's interesting. It's a, it's a, you know, it's a pretty singular story. A, a guy's rest, he commits a crime, and, and what are the implications? But in the story, he, he, uh, Raskolnikov, the main character, sort of divides the world into two categories of people, ordinary, Peter, and extraordinary. And it's the extraordinary who sort of, you know, their word for life gets the most space, let's say. And so, you know, you can have your truth, that's fine, I'll have mine, but like the world is divided, ordinary, extraordinary, and you know, when push comes to shove, like this one cuts deeper, this one occupies more ground. And I, I feel like there's a sense in this moment as Peter stands, they look at him and see that it's Peter that pull in us and them to sort of, you know, whatever our cornerstone is, whatever that rule of life, that word for life is for you, one of the ways it functions in your life is it helps you divide the world and sort of who's got it and who doesn't. Who, who you know, what, what is the standard for sort of getting, holding it together as we sang this morning and sort of who's outside of that. And when Peter stands up and says, you are saved not by any of those cornerstones or foundations, but on the work of another, Jesus whom God has raised, well, it, it shakes all of those spaces in your life and mine. It changes not only sort of how we see ourselves, but how we see 
others. I, I'm, I'm going to just read kind of one example. It's sort of a, an, is I don't know if extreme is the right word, uh, just a beautiful example of the implications of what we've considered. And, uh, and then we'll wrap up. But if, if you'll indulge me, so this is, um, his name was William D. Campbell, and he was a pastor in the South uh, during the civil rights m movement, was born uh, poor in 1924 in Mississippi, uh, went on to be educated, and then returned uh, to the Southeast as a Southern Baptist Convention pastor. But he was, he was vocal in his uh, speaking for civil rights and wrote about it. And over the years, he, he made uh, frequently sort of enemies of the white evangelical sort of uh, pastoral landscape of his day, both in and outside of the South. He wrote books about it. His argument, Campbell's argument, was that in Christ, if this is true about Jesus, your new identity in Christ comes with complete and incontestable equality, he says. Changes everything. All the rules of life you use to kind of keep score, to know that you measure up and, and maybe identify folks who don't. He said all of that, it's, it's changed. It's gone. The cornerstones of your life have all been altered. He, he, he was in a meeting on, on one occasion with some other southern ministers who wanted to challenge him in Atlanta wanted to challenge him during the civil rights years and were uncomfortable with the way he was talking about the application of Jesus to the moment that he was in, like Peter on that day. And, and, and they didn't want to speak directly to race relations, and so they asked him instead, one of the pastors stood and wanted to know more about his theology. Uh, tell us more about his theology and some other uh, sort of kind of subverting the question. And Campbell had been talking already for like an hour to them, explaining to them. And so he, I think he was frustrated. So he cut to the chase, and this is what he said. I try my best like Southern drawl. I am from Georgia. You'd think I could do it, but I don't know. So here we go. <laughs> my name is William D. Campbell. I am who my mama and daddy named me the night I was born. I live in Tennessee. I have three children. I'm a preacher of the good news of Jesus Christ. I believe God poured his love out for us in Jesus Christ and reconciled the world to himself, saving us from our sins. But I know why you're asking me where I went to school. If I had gone to Bob Jones, that would mean one thing. If I said I went to the Presbyterian Seminary, you'd think you'd know what that means. If I, I said I'd went to New Orleans Baptist Seminary or Harvard or Princeton, right away, you'd think you'd know who I was. But the words of Scripture are very clear. Once a man has truly seen the truth, it doesn't matter where he's from, what his race is, or where he went to school. None of that matters. I believe God was in Christ, not maybe, not perhaps, not just if we're good boys and girls, but God was in Jesus Christ, reconciling the world to himself. That means it's over, done with. Our salvation is accomplished. We are one people. We've been reconciled to God and to each other. And so racial prejudice is a violation of that fact. 
And in language too colorful for me to use with you this morning, he said, I believe God was in Jesus Christ. That's what I believe. And so in this moment, he sounds like Peter, right? He sounds like Peter. I believe God raised Jesus from the dead, reconciling the world to himself. He is the one who has saved us all. That changes everything. It changes how I relate to you and how we relate to people different from us. It changes all of that, whatever was the cornerstone, whatever was the way or the word of life to sort of let me categorize it and hold things together, all of that, he says, is different now. But lest we think that word cuts only one direction, this is a challenging bit of his story. Much later in his life, 1998, he traveled to Mississippi for the trial of one Sam Bowers. And Bowers was a former imperial wizard of the White Knights of the Ku Klux Klan of Mississippi. He had reigned over the uh, terrorism uh, in the South, violent terrorism in the South during that time. He had orchestrated uh, murders in 64 for which he had been called to account. And then in 1998, more than 30 years after that first arrest, he was on trial again for the murder of a uh, gentleman, uh, Vernon Dahmer in 1966, who was the NAACP leader, a churchman in Forest County, Mississippi. Campbell had known Bowers, had been introduced to him at the time of his impending arrest. He was living in a nearby town. And so he went to the trial. Remember, Campbell, right? He went, went to the trial. And on the first day of the trial, Campbell arrived early in the Hattiesburg courthouse, and he approached Bowers, the former imperial wizard of the KKK. And he shook his hand. He was sitting at the defendant's table. Campbell comes in and shakes his hand. Bauer asked him to sit here with him, but Campbell declined and then walked across the courtroom, greeted the Dahmer family, and took his seat with them where he remained the rest of the day. During a, a recess in the trial, a newspaper reporter asked Campbell how it was possible for him to walk between the grieving family and the Klan terrorist who surely deserved punishment and not compassion. Campbell's actions were offensive to the reporter. Did he really think that Bauer, Bowers deserved his kindness? Newspaper coverage of Bowers had portrayed him, perhaps rightfully so, as the embodiment of evil, a monster in every respect. This Southern Baptist preacher adjusted his black frame glasses and offered an explanation to the Boston journalist who had asked him the question. And in that moment, he gave him a variation of what he had told that group of pastors so many years before. Why had he acknowledged Sam Bowers as a person, giving him a handshake? And again, in language too colorful for me to use in this moment, he said, it's because I'm a Christian. He would be sitting with the Dahmer family, but as a minister of the gospel, he would not forsake Sam Bowers, even though the former imperial wizard was wholly undeserving of such love. It is a picture, I think, of the, of the radical implications of the truth that Peter announces. Jesus Christ has been raised from the dead. Whom you crucified, God has raised. And that changes everything. Whatever cornerstone in your life you use to decide who's in and who's out and well, what's, the, what's it mean to sort of hold it together? What's the rule of life that says I'm doing okay, that I'm enough? Whatever that conversation is like for you, Peter says Jesus changes all of that. All of that. Whatever that cornerstone is for you that helps you to clearly know who you are and who the people around you are. 
Peter says, Jesus changes that. That space in your life that lets you define who you are in, in, in contradistinction, right, as opposed to the people around you. In relative terms, Peter says, Jesus changes all of that. We've all got our sort of words to live by, right? Our theories of, of who and what is wrong in the world and all of the ways in which we think we can perform to sort of stay on the right side of that conversation. But the grace of God in Jesus just pulls the rug out from under all that. If Jesus is true, as Peter presents him here, then he says to every cornerstone in your life and mine, it's inadequate. Of every life system we want to hold up, our morality or our sophistication or our education or our status of all the good behavior, of all the things we want to hold up, Jesus says to all of it, it's tainted with sin. Paul will say later to, to Jews, it's a, a stumbling block because they want to hold up all of this sort of moral example. And to Greeks, it's, it's foolishness because it's weak. It lacks the sophistication that they would have held up as a word to live by. Peter says, Jesus changes all of that. Why is that a hard word to hear? I think it's a hard word to hear because if, if he's the cornerstone, if he's what sort of matters uh, in, in terms of your life, well then, what, what does that mean? What Peter seems to suggest in this moment, it means that your performance is perhaps not as integral uh, to your life as you thought. It, it means if, if God says to us in Jesus, I love you, not on the basis of what you do and have done, but on what my son has done for you, what I have given up on the cross for you, if, if, if my love for you rests on that and not on what you do, well, it is good news, but it's sometimes also hard to hear because it takes the control out of your hands and away from your ability to perform. And often our response to that move, like the religious leaders in Peter's day, might be troubled, it says. They were greatly troubled. Because, man, sometimes we don't like the idea that you can be saved by grace because it means that my performance can't make it right, can't make it whole, can't be enough. You could apply it in any number of places. I think of all the spaces in our culture of identity construction. You, 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 you do you. The weight of, it sounds freeing, but the weight of having to maintain that structure and, and live up to it and, and, and create it and cultivate it. It's, at the end of the day, it's oppressive. It can't hold up under the weight of life. It's a weak cornerstone. Peter says there's only one can hold up under that pressure. Any of you guys started watching Quarterbacks on Netflix? Oh, yeah, right? No? It's a documentary about Mahomes, Kirk Cousins, Marcus Mariota, some NFL quarterbacks. If that's not your speed, you should really watch the Tour de France one because, whoa, it's incredible. 
right? But, but if either of them are, are suitable examples. In the Tour de France, they keep interviewing this French guy. You know, there's the Peloton, the group of riders who are just, it's, he says the Peloton is relentless. It, it waits for no one. It will overtake you, consume you. You can have a good day and it doesn't matter because the next day the Peloton, the pressure of the Peloton will just want to overtake you. And that same thread was present in the quarterback's one. If you watch, I've only seen a little bit, but, but Cousins differently and Mahomes differently both alluded to the fact that the pressure to perform was so relentless that, that it's impossible to kind of live uh, whole and healthy. In, in Mahomes, he expressed it this way, that despite all the success, it's the, oftentimes the misses, the, 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 the mistakes that tend to want to live more presently, the, the pressure, it's like the Peloton always overtaking, that if these things are the cornerstone, they will inevitably leave you needing more. Peter says, I don't know what that is for you. My hunch is you're not a Tour de France, cycl- de France cyclist. Maybe you are. Maybe that's your thing. Maybe it's career. Maybe it's finance. Maybe it's your picture of sort of the perfect family life. I, I don't know what those things are, but you're kind of like, this is the pressure to sort of place all of that on that pursuit. will be like the Peloton. It will overtake you. Peter says, there's one thing, one truth. It's the gospel grace to you in Jesus Christ and the result of that is joy and courage we guys thank you for listening to the Park City Church podcast to learn more about our church and or to find ways to get involved in our community visit us at parkcitykc.com or follow us on social media at parkcitykc.com